This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Oleg Tolmachev. Now, I've wanted to have Oleg on for quite some time. We've gotten to know each other over the past few years, and he's helped me out with the Russian-centric portions of the novel for reasons that uh, you'll find out in this podcast. Uh, We sped things up a little bit because he happens to be in the Ukraine right now, and he's not leaving. So uh, we recorded this on Saturday on February 26th. And you'll hear me say in the podcast that I wanted to hold it until he was safe and secure and putting it out would not endanger him, his family, his employees, um, or anything like that. So he did get in touch with me today and let me know that I should put this out and I should read something uh, that he sent out uh, just this morning. So Oleg sent this open letter to Fox News, to Bloomberg, and to Pittsburgh Business Times. And here's what he says. Dear sirs, my name is Oleg Tomachev. I'm the head of production at Naftogaz, Ukraine's national gas company, since January 2021. Prior to that, I've had a 21-year career in the U.S. oil and gas industry in a variety of roles from engineering to executive management. I became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 2016. The entire world is watching the events in Ukraine. My employees and their families are getting killed and wounded by the military forces of the Russian Federation. As a veteran of the U.S. oil and gas industry, I call on you to make your platform available for this message to all international oil and gas service companies that do business in Russia or with Russian oil and gas companies. Please terminate your business in Russia immediately and shut down your offices in Russian Federation. I specifically call on the leadership of Schlumberger, Weatherford, and Halliburton, to name a few. Revenues from Russian oil and gas exports are utilized to finance the war on innocent people in Ukraine. Head of production, Naftogaz Group, Oleg Tomachev. Let's hear from him. Oleg Tomachev. Dude, first off, uh, I'm glad you are safe. And uh, and I want to ask you about how safe you are here in a second and ask you where you are. But if I ask you anything that is... Uh, going to compromise, obviously, your safety and security. I'll just uh, have it edited out. So um, we'll, we'll go that route. Yeah, so actually, so I'm in Lviv. Uh, so Lviv is a, is a pretty large city, probably the largest city in Western Ukraine. Uh, the reason I'm in Lviv, uh, my company, Naftagas, has a, a big regional office here where we operate uh, oil and gas fields. Uh, we, we continue to operate, uh, actually, even in uh, Poltava and Kharkiv regions, uh, which are uh, you know, there is some uh, uh, fighting going on there, guards, tanks, and, you know, we just kind of basically shuffle people in and out and evacuate. Uh, you know, everything's been, uh, has been prepared for the last eight years, so there's there's no chaos. But uh, that's why I'm in Lviv, uh, because we have infrastructure here, we have people, we have an office facility, uh, and, uh, and so I will be, you know, continuing to uh, try and run my operations here, so we, we produce gas. Uh, for for people, it's still heating season here, so we just need to be uh, as coordinated as possible and, and basically deliver heat to people's homes. And it, you've been in quite the uh, you've had quite the year, not just this last uh, this last few uh, few days here in in Ukraine, which the world has obviously been watching. But um, 
Uh, how did you get into this position? How did you find yourself in uh, in Ukraine here over this past uh, this past year? Um, and and let's go back to where you where you grew up. Like, what put you in this uh, in this position? Yeah, so so my path here was quite uh, quite serendipitous. Uh, but uh, I have what what I term as a murky biography. So I uh, I was born in Belarus while my father was in the military service in Belarus uh, in in seventy five. Uh, and then I was like maybe a month and a half old when my parents moved to Kazakhstan. So I actually grew up in Kazakhstan and I was, I was there the entire time until I was 21, uh, was a citizen of Kazakhstan. And uh, after high school, I had a few jobs. And one of the jobs was actually working for an oil and gas uh, consortium, which had uh, five uh, major Western oil and gas companies as a translator. Uh, one of my first jobs before that, I was actually translating for the USP score for 20 bucks a month. Uh, basically, just to uh, to learn English, uh, so I, I became exposed to you know how oil and gas operates and, and the challenges and the problem solving aspects of it, and I decided to get my education of a petroleum engineer. Uh, talk the company into sponsoring me to to come to the United States, the University of Oklahoma, in '96, uh, and then in '97 the company <clears throat> went through some changes and they they just quit paying for my school uh, and and my living expenses, which point, uh, you know, the obligations kind of became uh, uh, clear, cl- clear and clear. Uh, so I, you know, sold a little plasma and, you know, uh, flipped some burgers, uh, finished uh, the University of Oklahoma as a petroleum engineer, uh, and uh, likely stayed in the States. Uh, had a, you know, a pretty, pretty successful, I would say, career in oil and gas, uh, drilling completions production um, uh, for 21 years. Uh, and then towards the, the end of my career in the States, I was, last seven years, I was an exec uh, for uh, a public uh, oil and gas company called Eclipse Resources and a montage. Then we went through an acquisition by another company. And uh, while I was, uh, you know, I, I got my, uh, you know, severance. And while I was contemplating what to do next, you know, hiking in Colorado, uh, going to Zanzibar and, and uh, Tanzania, uh, NAFTA got recruiters came to me. Uh, with the uh, with the offer to come and join the team as a director of production, uh, and and I thought you know, and the reason I was excited about that, and I'm still, by the way, really excited about this, is in the U.S. over the short, I would say, seven or eight years, we became uh, energy independent. Right, we began exporting oil, we began exporting natural gas, we actually turned the uh, LNG terminals from uh, import to export. Uh, because of the shale revolution, because of the horizontal drilling revolution, right? We began drilling horizontal wells, which produced, you know, 50x the amount of gas than a normal uh, vertical well. And, and uh, we really were in the forefront of perfecting this technology uh, and, and operational efficiencies. Uh, just to give you an idea, uh, my team has, dr- has drilled multiple uh, wells with a horizontal uh, section of the well, right? Uh, which would be about 10,000 feet under the ground, uh, that would be 21,000 foot long, right? And you drill it and you thread the needle uh, in a five foot window up and down. This is just crazy if you think about it, right? Think about this, seven miles long well on the ground horizontally. So when when I began talking to Naftagas and talk talk to their geologists, uh, it became apparent to me that uh, Ukraine has a huge potential to basically became uh, to become another uh, another U.S. gas producer, you know, size-wise, uh, huge geological structures. They do not have the technology. They they drill vertical conventional wells, very 
limited performance compared to horizontal wells. So I thought, okay, the country is producing about 20 billion cubic meters of natural gas. It's 10 billion short for internal needs, right? Which that 10 billion, they reverse deliver from Gazprom, from the Russian gas through uh, Slovakia uh, or, uh, or Hungary. Uh, and, and therefore, they're always blackmailed uh, geopolitically uh, because of that. And so it was clear to me that what we have done in the States, what we've done in Texas, Louisiana, Ohio, West Virginia, uh, can be uh, basically copy-pasted to Ukraine in terms of technology. Uh, and we can replicate the success in five to seven years and give this country not only energy independence, uh, but also uh, the ability to export gas to Europe which would be a huge geopolitical shift, uh, energy independence and security for the country. And, and to me, it became kind of like uh, competing in the Olympics and trying to get the gold, right? So uh, that was the challenge and, and the idea that I had the technology, I knew the people who could come and help. I also speak fluent Russian, I understand the culture, uh, and I can basically put the culture and the technology and the operations together and hopefully achieve that goal uh, if the country has enough political will uh, and uh, and the ability to attract uh, budgets. Uh, and, and I'm still even more excited about this because we actually see that this is happening and, and we're planning this and we are going to do it. Uh, so to me, that's what got me excited why I'm here and uh, why I'm still here, you know, both reasons. Jeez. Um, I have so many questions for you. But uh, first, going back to why did you guys leave Belarus when you were, uh, when you were younger? Um, what what drew, drew you guys... Uh, away from that, that country into the, the country you grew up in? Yeah, so my father was actually from Kazakhstan. He was born in Kazakhstan. Uh, my mom was from Russia. So uh, my father was doing his uh, two-year mandatory military service um, in Belarus. And that's just, uh, I guess, where I was conceived and born. Uh, and so once his military service was up, he came back to Kazakhstan to take his job, and as, as did my mother. And so I, I grew up in Kazakhstan. My younger brother actually was born in Kazakhstan. And what did you, what did you do? How was growing up there like? You know, it's uh, it was very humble. Um, Western Kazakhstan is basically a desert. Uh, not a lot of vegetation. Uh, growing up as kids in the Soviet Union was probably a lot less fun there than it would be, say, in Moscow, Kiev. Uh, so my childhood, we just had to, you know, uh, improvise and play with cardboard boxes and, you know, uh, learn to play chess. So growing up was pretty humble, um, rigorous school, uh, did a bit of sports, uh, fencing, karate. Um, but, uh, you know, when, you, when you're growing up, and, and I'm sure you know through your travels, uh, when you're a kid and you grow up in a very kind of a humble place with no money, uh, with not a lot going on, but this is all you, this is all you want, this is all you know, uh, it seems fine. So, you know, it feels like uh, growing up was fine. Uh, had some difficulties, uh, you know, when the Soviet Union broke up, uh, hyperinflation, uh, crime, uh, you know, but then we kind of took it all in strides. Um, I remember I was working for an oil and gas company as, a, as an IT guy, and uh, inflation was so high that uh, the country couldn't print enough money. That was Kazakhstan. And uh, one, one time they figured out a way to pay, uh, to wire the money to a farm, and the farm uh, gave us honey. So I got paid in honey. I got paid in like two, three liter jars of honey. The problem was somehow uh, a bunch of ants got into the honey. So it was literally uh, like honey mixed with ants. 
And uh, my mom and I opened open the jars of honey. And we're like, yeah, you know, extra protein. I mean, yeah. and I should probably let people know that we we uh, we linked up on uh, on Twitter a couple of years ago and uh, have uh, become friends via these modern platforms. And you've helped me with some of the uh, the Russian sections of my novels um, that I sincerely appreciate. Um, so, what was it like then, going from from that childhood and uh, and seeing that that hyperinflation and seeing the Soviet Union break apart, and then coming to the United States and to a university where not every student, but many students may be a little entitled um, and not have that that background uh, growing up. What was that like to come to the United States and then uh, be immersed in this new culture? You know, I remember one of the most shocking things to me was uh, when I got checked in and, and got into the dorms. I was visiting uh, this uh, Russian guy I knew who had a roommate. And I looked uh, in his uh, roommate's closet and it had like 10 pairs of jeans and like eight pairs of shoes. And I was like, holy cow, that's a, uh, that's a lot of clothes. Uh, why would anybody need, need 10 pairs of jeans? You know, I, I just could not figure that out. Uh, but uh, to me, it was, uh, you know, the, the opulence, uh, what it seemed like uh, was shocking to me, uh, you know, even though it's, it's Oklahoma, it's not California, uh, you know, pretty modest, hardworking state. Uh, but uh, the other thing is, uh, there were actually a lot of international students uh, uh, that, that I've met that came uh, with no money, right? Uh, we worked, uh, some of us worked 20 hours a week, others 60 hours a week, uh, went to school, got good grades, uh, had two or three jobs. And then I've seen, you know, a bunch of kids that, uh, that were younger than me, uh, like, like you said, entitled kids that, uh, that were kind of a mess. Uh, and uh, what do you know? I'm kind of going through the phase with my kids now. So, you know, s- skipping a generation, they're now American kids with iPhones and, and 10 pairs of jeans and 20 pairs of shoes, <laughs> and, and they are a mess just like those other kids were. <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, when you came here then, did, were you, was the goal to become a U.S. citizen? Uh, was that part of your plan in coming to the United States? And in coming here before that, did, what was your what was your impression of the United States beforehand? Were you Was your impression of the United States informed by popular culture? Were there, were there books or did you see movies uh, over there that, uh, that painted a picture of the United States? Um, what did you think of it before you came? Well, I will tell you, uh, I had a pretty crooked picture of the United States because actually my first book in English that I've read was Howard Stern's Private Parts. Oh my gosh. So just, <laughs> ju- just imagine, brought, brought to me, uh, nonetheless, by the U.S. Peace Corps, uh, by one of the volunteers. Wow. So I've read, uh, and the second book was uh, Red Storm Rising by Tom Clancy. You know, since then, oh. I'm a big fan of Tom Clancy books. All right. So I've read, uh, I've read uh, the, uh, the Private Parts book, and I'm like, holy cow, there's lesbians in New York. I should, uh, <laughs> I should go to America. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Oh my goodness! I, Howard Stern's done uh, done more for U.S. foreign policy and recruiting uh, people than he knows. That's amazing. I mean, because the power of popular <laughs> culture, I think it used to be, and probably still is, our most one of our most powerful exports used to be from Hollywood. Uh, especially, we're talking the '50s and the '60s and the '70s, um, and uh, now it's a little different. Now the kind of the films and and uh, and some of the books that are that are out there kind of paint a, a different picture. It's still powerful. But uh, but not it's it's obviously a little different with social media and everything. But um, but then you you get here and would you, was your plan to always become a U.S. citizen? You know, uh, I will I will take just another step back. 
outside of Howard Stern, you know, Chuck Norris, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, posters all over my apartment. Yes. Uh, all of those 80s movies. I, I know you like those. And yes, uh, you do. <laughs> uh, Red Dawn. Red Dawn, one of those very actually uh, pertinent to the current situation. Yes. Um, so, uh, so initially, my goal was, you know, to go and get the education, right? But then, uh, very quickly, I, I was uh, trying to figure out how I would stay uh, and become a U.S. citizen. And that was a very long path. Uh, as, as you may know, it's not at all easy to get a green card. Uh, it's a very long process. It took me um, seven years, seven or eight years to get a green card through my company sponsoring me as a, as a professional. Uh, you know, then some more bureaucracy and eventually getting my uh, U.S. citizenship. And, and there were really two extremely emotional moments for me in that whole process. Uh, one is actually uh, going to the courthouse and getting sworn in as a U.S. citizen. And second, uh, and I ex did not expect that at all, was actually going to vote for the first time as a U.S. citizen. Was the most, uh, uh, I don't know, probably tear-jerking moment to me because like, now you, you understand that you have become American once you vote. This is it. It's not just a passport. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Did, now, when you started working your way, kind of learning the, the oil and gas industry, uh, not from an academic standpoint, but from working uh, with these different companies as you start down this path, do you have any international postings or were all of them uh, continental United States based? Well, actually, I was uh, getting ready to graduate when oil price was at all time low. It was $7.50 per barrel, and gas price was basically nothing. So I had uh, 16 interviews, and I got 13 letters of rejections. Uh, and I, so I had three offers, uh, two from major U.S. companies that wanted me to go to Kazakhstan to, uh, and work for the local uh, pay scale. So I, I told them uh, a few things in uh, non-parliamentary language, and they never called me back. Uh, and, and one was... <laughs> Uh, and one was a uh, Argentinian company called YPF who actually wanted me to go to Argentina. I said, well, this is great. That, that beats the heck out of coming back to Western Kazakhstan. Uh, and, uh, but then they said, well, actually, on the second thought, uh, how about you get some practical training in Amarillo, Texas? I said, all right, Amarillo, here I come. Uh, and so through just a series of random mergers and acquisitions and, and, you know, wound up working for BP and Chesapeake and, uh, you know, uh, eventually uh, getting on the path of getting my uh, green card. Uh, but, uh, you know, to me, my, at the, when I was graduating, my biggest goal was to figure out a way to, to stay and to become a U.S. citizen. So I was, you know, molding my uh, job search as such, uh, and, and I got really lucky that it happened because, you know, the odds were against it for sure. Wow. I mean, that incredible career in oil and gas. I know a little bit about it just by, by knowing you. Um, but uh, did you also, before I ask you about horizontal drilling a little bit more, um, what uh, did you travel during that time just on your own? Did you, uh, you, I think you've done a lot of traveling around the world as well, just on your own, not for work. Uh, actually, uh, not, not really, not since I was a kid, because once you kind of set on the path of getting your green card, uh, it becomes a really bad idea to travel because okay. then uh, you can be denied entry at any airport for no reason. You know, it, it may or may not happen, but, you know, they tell you that like once you file and you're in this process until you actually get the green card, uh, do not travel. So we've traveled a lot in the U.S., but not internationally. And of course, then my uh, Kazakhstani passport expired by the time I got my, my green card. So then I had to wait uh, five years to get my U.S. passport. So 
just traveled a lot in the States, but just not, uh, not outside much. Uh, I guess I thought that because you're, that uh, you, you had that trip planned to Nepal, didn't you? Weren't you on your way to, to Nepal when, when things shifted for you? Yes, I, I actually, I was really upset. I was training for that for six months. I was in the best shape of my life. That was going to be uh, April of 2020. Uh, we all know what happened in 2020. That was the first uh, lockdown, first wave of COVID. And uh, in retrospect, if I had gone five days earlier, I would have made it to Nepal, but then I would have stayed there for about nine months. Wow. So would lo- would have loved to go to base camp. Don't know if I wanted to live in Kathmandu for nine months. So it's, you know, it's a give and take kind of thing. Right. Oh, man. And then what did you see over that uh, over that period from when you graduated from college until uh where you are now, uh, the shift as far as uh, technologies in oil and gas, that that uh, horizontal drilling. Um, uh, I mean, you were you were part of a of a of a boom essentially in uh, in the oil and gas industry. Uh, yes, and uh, you know, on the one hand, we've done some really cool things uh, in, in the oil and gas industry, but on the other hand, I always say, you know, we're we're not building rocket ships like Elon Musk, right? I mean, a lot of the things that we do. Uh, we deal with dumb iron, and a lot of it is just operational efficiency and common sense, uh, but but also a lot of new technology. So uh, really, in uh, 2005 and six, we began drilling horizontal wells in Barnett Shale around Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I was with Chesapeake at the time. Uh, and we took what we learned in Barnett, which was kind of a first foray into horizontal uh, shale development, and then just uh, scaled it up to everywhere, right? We've done the Hinesville Shale in Louisiana. Uh, we've, we've taken the technology to uh, Ohio, uh, Utica Shale, and Marcellus. Uh, and uh, I was, at the time, a pretty techy uh, engineer. I've, I've done a lot of technical stuff, uh, computer simulations. Um, and so, uh, luckily, I was always at the forefront of, of kind of getting into these new plays, uh, which, which was huge experience. And uh, for an engineering nerd, it was just a paradise. I mean, it's, it's so cool to do something that nobody has done before, uh, at least in the new area, right? So that was that was very thrilling. Uh, and then by, you know, I would say by 2015, 16, we got really good at it. You know, we, we, we weathered uh, the, uh, the, cri- the prices crush in, in 14, 15, 16. Every year was the w- worse than the year before in terms of oil and gas prices, but we kept on going uh, because we continued to fine-tune technology and operational efficiency. And, and that really made the uh, U.S., uh, natural gas and oil producers, probably the most uh, technologically and operationally advanced uh, group of people on, on earth. And it's still the case. Can you explain what that, what horizontal drilling looks like? Um, how, how does one do that and how did they come up with it? Uh, so horizontal drilling has been down to a much smaller scale, uh, probably since the seventies, but uh, uh, really what, what was done, if you, if you can imagine uh, a, a drill bit uh, drilling a hole in the ground, uh, and, and it goes, you know, say 10,000 feet down. Uh, then you use a uh, special uh, uh, bottom hole assembly tool called the rotary steerable, which has retractable pads on its sides and, and a gyro. So it knows uh, the azimuth and it knows the inclination. And those pads can retract uh, and, uh, and, and come out. And therefore, you can apply pressure on the one side of the hole versus the other and steer it uh, in a very precise way. So uh, once you basically are done drilling your hole vertically, you case it, meaning you set a steel pipe and, and pump cement around it to secure in place. Uh, and then you go in with this rotary steerable tool uh, and uh, make a turn uh, called a tangent. Uh, uh, you land in your 
um, in your target rock, and then you and you drill, drill several miles. Um, and so what happens because you contact so much rock, uh, so much more than just a vertical well with just a single point of penetration, uh, and then it do induce uh, thirty to uh, in some cases, what we've done, 125 frag stages, 25 frag, 125 frags along the well bore, along the lateral. Uh, the productivity of the reservoir, as compared to just a single vertical penetration, is just just enormously much higher. Uh, and by the way, you also have a lot less vertical pads. You also have a lot less holes. You have a lot less facilities, a lot less roads. So, uh, in a huge way, actually, not only is it cheaper, but you Put a lot less strain on infrastructure, and it's more environmentally friendly way to do it. Right? That's why uh, you see actually U.S. greenhouse emissions going down uh, since the large-scale uh, implementation of horizontal drilling and fracking. Right? Uh, the emissions went down, I think, about 30, 40 percent uh, because it's just so much more efficient uh, uh, to to uh, to build a well, construct a well, uh, but also it's a lot more clean and efficient than coal. Right, so that's the whole deal with uh, horizontal drilling and, and natural gas. Jeez, and that was a huge part of us becoming energy independent so uh, so quickly over the last few years. Is that right? That technology. This is exactly how we did it. It's horizontal drilling and fracking. Uh, so, uh, Aubrey McClendon, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've heard about him and, and Chesapeake. Uh, he was CEO of Chesapeake, and he really was the natural gas pioneer. Uh, just rolling out this uh, horizontal development large scale across multiple bases in the U.S. And then a lot of other companies followed. Uh, but prior to that, uh, in the 90s, the rock that we drilled uh, horizontally, uh, because it was much more tight than the conventional rock for single point penetration, it wasn't even considered to be a, a geological possibility to do those things. So it took a shift in the mindset, it took a shift in technology, and, and it took perfecting technology over a very short amount of time. Uh, and, and then here we go, we become energy independent. And, and the biggest driver, uh, you know, the, the necessity is the mother of all inventions, right? The biggest driver is that uh, a lot of the independent uh, natural gas companies, we did not have the budgets of Exxon and, and Chevron or BP. Uh, gas prices were low, things were tough. And so we had to become very, very efficient and very, very technologically advanced very quickly or we would have ceased, ceased to exist. You know, we wouldn't have made it. And, and really because of this necessity, we, we became an awful lot creative in how do we make money, right? And coincidentally, that's that's how you make money in natural gas industry. And, and can you explain what happened over the last year then from going from uh, energy independence uh, to now being dependent upon other countries uh, for for uh, for our energy? What, what, what happened over the last year? Uh, you mean in Ukraine? Uh, in the United States? Uh, well, that was a, uh, I, I think, and, and what, and I will draw a parallel with Europe here in just a little bit, right? Uh, by, uh, by advocating for things that uh, do sound good, right? And maybe do sound right and do sound uh, morally right. Uh, but don't add up in terms of just sheer physics. Mm. Uh, you you get on on the high horse and then you disregard the reality of of, of the world, right? And, and then sooner or later you come to realize that if your idea is not backed up by the simple laws of physics, by supply and demand, by the financial institutions, eventually you will crush and burn. Eventually you're going to have an issue. 
And uh, and actually, what we're seeing in the U.S. in terms of maybe higher uh, oil prices or higher natural gas prices, therefore heating and, and purchasing ability of people just in general, it is ten times worse in Europe. Europe was uh, on the forefront of the virtue signaling and uh, getting away from nuclear, getting away from natural gas, uh, and towards uh, towards wind, towards solar. Uh, and uh, what happens is, you know, okay, so you have maybe half of your or or a big portion of your production that's natural gas, and you have wind and solar. And if natural gas gets cut off uh, or gets reduced uh, uh, via the Gazprom pipeline, all of a sudden you realize that your other means of producing energy are non-existent. They're they're very weak. You know, they're not designed to sustain the country. And uh, when the source that the most reliable, the most plentiful gets choked. Then you go, oh shit, you know, my, my gas price went up uh, 15, 20 fold in Europe uh, and people can't afford to hit their homes. Uh, the industry is in shambles. You can't make fertilizer. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't bake bread. You can't make milk. Uh, all because you run into some geopolitical snag and then your, your energy supply is compromised. Uh, so uh, the, the clear picture of what could happen uh, is actually Europe right now. So hopefully the policymakers in the U.S. are watching what's happening in Europe with the Russian gas pipeline and uh, realizing that you kind of have to hedge your bets a little bit. And it, it seems like the being energy independent is one of the things that makes us uh, uh, stronger than almost anything else on the world stage. Obviously, having a, uh, a strong military, uh, you know, having that uh, that stick, but also being energy independent gives us so many more options on the on the world stage and allows us to to lead uh, in a way where we're not beholden to other countries um like it seems now we're i think we're importing quite a few barrels of oil uh every month from russia um which essentially means that we are uh funding unintentionally perhaps uh but still paying the country to do what it's doing right now so we are, uh, as a country, uh, appalled by what's going on in Ukraine by this uh, Russian incursion. But at the same point, we are almost funding that through uh, not being energy independent ourselves, which we were just uh, not that long ago. That's correct. And, and actually, uh, because of how the, the social structure is, is designed to operate in Russia, you're not only making Russia richer; you're making Putin richer, and his oligarchs richer. Actually, you can you can put names on, on the list of uh, the folks that are benefiting from this, right? I mean, it's uh, you know, if you talk, if you look at uh, the teachers and doctors in Russia, they're not the ones getting the benefit of the oil dollars. No, no, those petrodollars allows those other countries gives them that strength. Uh, Domestically and geopolitically, also um, international front. Um, so it was one of the first things I wrote they get down. Feisty, they get feisty, they get feisty, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the first things I wrote down when uh, when when uh, Russia invaded the other day. I thought uh, someone's going to ask me about this, so I just quickly wrote my my thoughts down. And uh, that's one of the first things that I, that I wrote down here is becoming less, uh, uh, once again, become energy independent. I wrote that down right here amongst uh, five or six other other points, um, things that we can do to help Ukraine that. Don't have anything specifically to do to Ukraine with Ukraine, but uh, help us on the world stage. And uh, becoming energy independent um, is certainly near the top of that list. Now, uh, 
eventually you move from being a uh, an engineer. I mean, you're always an engineer, but you move out of that into being an executive. Um, what was that transition right. like? And at what stage did you become an executive? Uh, I think it became, uh, it, it happened in 2013 uh, when I left uh, by, uh, the company called Chesapeake as a, where I was uh, an asset manager, basically just coordinating a lot of different operations, but still doing a lot of engineering duties. And, and I became uh, a vice president of drilling completions for a company called Eclipse, which we then took public and, and became uh, pretty successful with. And uh, uh, for me, it was kind of a soft landing because the company that I joined at the time, I think I was employed number nine or 10. So we grew the company quite rapidly and went to, you know, listed at New York Stock Exchange. But because I, I was at uh, ground zero, uh, I, I was able to grow with the company uh, as a manager, as a leader. Uh, and, uh, you know, perhaps it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like I was going into it cold turkey. So uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. Um, and, uh, you know, but at the time I was employed number, number nine. And by the time we sold the company to Southwestern, we, we, you know, we were probably 260 people, right? Now I have uh, 6,400 people reporting to me in Ukraine, which is nuts. Uh, just really strange numbers. Wow, that's amazing. And and if people are watching this, they can see your, your shirt, which says hope is not, and you can't see what's underneath it, but it probably says course it, of action. It says not a good plan. Good plan. Okay, got it. Hope is not a good plan. Is that 30 seconds out right there? That, that's right. That's uh, that's Evan's shirt. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, in my in my crisis, uh, crisis bag, a uh, duffel bag, uh, besides uh, my radios and my Garmin and Reach and, uh, and knives, you probably nice. you probably recognize one of those. Oh, there we go. Nice, uh, nice. Yep, I have uh, I have uh, about six of uh, Evans uh, TSO shirts. <laughs> I saw you wearing one on uh, last night on on Tucker. Of course, I noticed it right away. Uh, so for those that uh, that don't know what you're talking about, it's a former SEAL has a company called Thirty Seconds Out, and uh, hope is not a good plan. Hope is not a course of action. Um, no. Uh, be prepared to self-rescue, uh, those sorts of things. Be your own cavalry is another, uh, another one. So be prepared. So when we're talking about preparedness, I know when you were getting ready to go to Ukraine, actually, before I ask about that, um, were you always uh, into being prepared because of how you, how you grew up or was that something that came along just, uh, was something that interested you later on or how did you, uh, get interested in making sure that you were, you were prepared, uh, to defend yourself and your family or for any other contingency that comes along? Well, first, uh, growing up, growing up in Kazakhstan, you, uh, uh, the, all the families, not not just me, right? We face a lot of adversities, uh, you know, rolling blackouts, water shortages, food shortages. So, uh, when you when you grow grow up uh, through that as a kid, uh, you know that uh, first first thing you know, uh, first thing you do when you know something bad has happened, you run the, the bathtub full of water, right? So you have a big water supply, flush the toilets, even cook whatever uh, you know uh, uh, give give water to your dogs uh, so there's many examples of what you do when when things kind of get bad so it's always been uh, kind of in, ingrained in my psyche a little bit uh but then uh you know in the u.s in, in oil and gas it's a very uh, uh kind of different subculture from other corporate cultures and oil and gas you know there's a bunch of uh ex-military guys there's a lot of you know a lot of guys that are uh, that that like to shoot guns, that like to train, that like to prepare for different eventualities, and uh, 
that really had just working in the industry had uh, a big you know influence on me like uh adam canna i won't name the guy's name but uh my construction manager used to be a delta guy for 20 years uh, and then a blackwater guy so he taught me some pretty handy pistol uh, uh skills uh then i began shooting you know three gun with some friends in oklahoma uh and, and you know just being around those people you you uh you become a part of that kind of ideology right then then i've I've met uh, my friend Alex Sonnenberg. Uh, I'm sure you, you, I don't know if you met him, but you know him. Uh, he was actually Evan's partner initially in, in TSO. Uh, and so it kind of rubs off on you, right? You start picking it up and it becomes a part of your uh, psyche a little bit. Uh, and certainly for the last, uh, I would say for the last six months, uh, Evan would be uh, texting me, uh, going over all the contingency planning and, you know, uh, getting the locals network, having the cash available, you know, comms, um, ability to get to the assembly, contingency, 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 bags, you know. So he, uh, I'd say he did a pretty good job of drilling into into me, uh, you know, being ready for what happened now. So I'll, I'll tell you, when uh, when it was time to the uh, GFO, uh, you know, I had two bags, my Motorola radios, my, uh, my Garmin, my knives. Uh, some food supplies, uh, always a full tank of diesel, you know, uh, didn't take, didn't take long. Amazing. I mean, and I know when you were about to head over there, we were talking on, uh, uh, back and forth, uh, about some of it as well. I mean, you were focused on the security aspect. Uh, I think so- soon after you got there, I guess, what did you do ahead of time before you got over there? Um, what did you do ahead of time knowing, Hey, I'm going to, to Ukraine. Um, what did you do as far as a preparation studying, the area before you went and, um, and, and what were you, do you have any concerns when you took this job? It's been about, has it been a year? Is that how long it's been? It's, it's been just over a year, uh, about, uh, 13 months. Well, first of all, so to set the record straight, uh, Ukraine is an extremely safe country. Uh, there's not a lot of violent crime, uh, even stealing uh, Kiev is probably one of the safest or, or well, up until a couple of days ago, what was one of the safest places on earth in, in my opinion. So uh, I was never worried about, you know, street violence or, or crime, you know, getting beat up or getting robbed. Uh, that was not the concern. Uh, there, were, there were two concerns. Uh, one is, um, as, as an exec for the company, I had to make a few people uh, involved in corruption schemes uh, very uncomfortable. Uh, basically, you know, beginning to choke off the oxygen from, from where they get their money. Uh, so that was one concern uh, in terms of just uh, personal uh, personal safety, and then the other concern is that which is what happened and what we see on TV right now is you know when things are well, uh, everything is very well. When things are bad, they're just really, really, really bad. So um, get, getting getting ready for an eventuality that uh, that that actually played out now was uh, was was the concern uh, that I had, which is why. Actually, I I brought my kit uh, that I was going to take to Nepal. I, I mean, with me in my go bag, I have solar batteries, I have water filtration kits, uh, all kinds of junk that I uh, I would have never had if I didn't want to go to Nepal, and I would have never thought I would use. Uh, but here we go. It's in my it's in my duffel bag, and uh, you know I may or may not use it, but it's it's there. You know, in case I need to. Jeez. And right, right when you got there, I think you were, uh, you were driving and you were, there was some sort of an election uh, uh, rally or something. You found yourself 
in in the middle of? Oh, that was actually in uh, that was actually in Zanzibar. Okay. So I went to yeah, I went to I went to Tanzania and uh, uh, you know spent time basically do my photo safari, uh, which was amazing. And then I uh, flew into Zanzibar, uh, and uh, as we were a bunch of tourists, or maybe three or four of us, we were in the cab uh, driving to the resort. I, I literally saw like trucks and buses with people hanging off of them and and just yelling and looking really agitating and uh and of course you know i'm not uh you know i'm not used to stuff like that i grew up uh, even though you know uh, shooting skills notwithstanding you know pretty sheltered life in the us right so the first thing i think is like the black hawk down movie right and i'm like oh holy shit what's what's happening uh so that was kind of like uh the first taste of uh what you could see in a foreign country, uh, and, and Africa to me was a lot less understood than uh, than Ukraine, for example. And they told me later that in Africa they will never harm a tourist because that's the only way they uh, put uh, food on the on the plate, especially in Zanzibar. But it was not, you know, known to me at the time when I saw this crowd. So that was kind of like the first, uh, uh, you know, eye-opening moment as far as like understanding and being prepared. And uh, and you know, it did have a little uh, imprint on me. And then, and then you make it to to Ukraine, and and uh, you know we'll go back and uh, and edit if I ask anything um, too sensitive here, security wise. But uh, did you bring your family initially, and then they left at some point? Is that how that? Yeah. So my family came. Uh, my my wife and my ten year old. My other two kids are uh, they're twenty one and nineteen. They're in the U.S. Uh, and uh, actually brought our dog, flown in the dog. I I don't. Want to know how much my wife paid for that? Uh, but uh, the dog's amazing. She's a white uh, Swiss Shepherd, Maya. Uh, so they came and uh, and listen. When, like I said, when things are nice in Kiev, they're 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 amazing. You know, you have uh, amazing restaurants and, and bars and things to do and a, a ton of culture. Just so much culture. Uh, you walk everywhere. And of course, mistake number one: I rent the apartment a hundred meters from the president's office. Uh, 200 meters to the National Bank and uh, 300 meters to the RADA, which is the the Congress. Right, awesome wow. location. Target. Not so much today. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's actually heavily guarded, heavily patrolled. Uh, and, and when things are nice, it's really nice. You know, you you walk to everywhere. Uh, and so my wife was really enjoying it. Uh, my my son was going to an American school uh, in Kiev. Uh, really didn't see difference between the school in Texas. Uh, was making mm-hmm. friends. And so it was fantastic, you know, a lot of things to do, um, a lot of places to travel. Odessa is great. The Carpathians uh, are great. Uh, it was awesome. But uh, when when things were beginning to get a little questionable, uh, about a month ago, I asked my wife to to please go to uh, to Budapest, uh, which is a very short flight. And and actually, uh, that, that one guy I told you about that, that taught me to shoot the 20-year Delta guy, uh, he uh, he did he served in uh, in Kosovo and he basically wrote me a text like dude you know things can get really bad and, and there can be really bad war atrocities you need to get the family out like now and my wife did not want to go but I showed her the text and she knows that guy she she knows he's is a real deal so I talked her into flying to Budapest uh, a couple of weeks after that I actually flew and, and visited them for for the long weekend uh, well I thought it was going to be a long weekend but then. Uh, essentially, 
the flights were beginning to get canceled uh, by mm-hmm. a lot of the airline companies. So I cut my weekend short, flew in to make sure I could still uh, come to Ukraine. Uh, and what maybe two or three weeks, it kind of hit the fans. Jeez. So, I mean, it was always on the on your radar that something could happen. I, I went back and looked at our, our correspondence from uh, from a year ago, and uh, I know it was a uh, not an overriding concern, but it was one of the things that uh, was a possibility. And of course, um, you know, Russia has been telegraphing this move for quite some time. I mean, I put it in my in True Believer, my second my second novel, which came out in 2019. I put something uh, similar in in that novel, like false flag operation to draw uh, to Russia back uh, back into the Ukraine as part of it. Um, so that was on your your radar, uh, and then you start to see things over this over this year slowly deteriorate. Or how does how does the the progression? What leads up to uh, to this invasion in your head that you're seeing there? I mean, you're focused on work at the time, but you're also security conscious. Um, so what are yeah. you seeing? Has that needle moves uh, towards the invasion a couple of days ago? Well, it's it's really interesting, right? When I came last January, uh, in February we had a large Russian troop buildup, almost just like this one. They had about a hundred thousand troops on the border last February, actually, but they were just kind of milling around, uh, you know, not really aggravating things too much in Donbass, just just kind of like running their diesel engines loud, right, so to say. Mm. Uh, and, and Ukrainians were like, you know, listen, dude, you know, we've lived with this for seven years. Uh, you know, uh, whether the West believes in it or understands it or appreciates it, we've been in war with Russia for the seven years. It's an unannounced war. Russia did not recognize it officially, but that's what Ukrainians uh, state and believe. And everybody will tell you that we've been in war with Russia since 14. Uh, and so uh, they're very callous and calm about this whole thing, right? They, no, nobody was freaking out. Uh, this time, what was different is the continued buildup of troops, um, and uh, you know, without going into too too much detail, we you know, Naftogaz is a, is the Ukraine's national oil and gas company or gas company. It's a it's a strategic company, uh, and our CEO uh, talks to the president even in in nice and calm times, two or three times a week. Uh, a week right, um, and actually, I was supposed to go meet him twice, uh, but. Uh, uh, second time he was sidetracked by you know what's happening now, uh, and, and so we, we uh, corporately we understand a lot more uh, of what's happening uh, than just what you see in the press uh, or what gets communicated uh, everywhere. Uh, because we have to take care of business, we have to we have to the company has to have emergency plans. It has to provide uh, gas uh, to to the public and the industries, uh, and so. Uh, it, it, the overall background was getting uh, was getting pretty heavy, uh, and uh, you know, like my spider senses were beginning beginning to tingle, uh, and so uh, that's when I decided to start talking to my wife about them, you know, uh, moving to uh, to Europe uh, for for just a little bit. And I said, listen, uh, if if nothing happens, consider this to be a vacation. You know, mm-hmm. you'll walk around Budapest and you'll you'll see the city. It'll be great. Uh, if if anything happens, uh, it'll be uh, a lot easier for me to uh, to kind of uh, uh, deal with situation, knowing that you guys are not not here. Got it. And you sent me a picture when you first got there, and it was a uh, a doormat, and it had uh, Putin's face on it, uh, and it was looks like it was they were yeah. hanging in some sort of a uh, you know marketplace, um, and it said uh, "Wipe your feet" uh, on it, and it was yes. It was, so, so uh, 
is it was that a fairly common sentiment amongst uh, the people that you you knew in uh, in Ukraine or that you know in Ukraine? Is that uh, hey, uh, are they, is it was it, are they fairly nationalistic? And um, because it wasn't that long ago that they were part of the Soviet Soviet Union, right? Yeah. So actually, I I bought uh, well, I, I didn't buy. I saw this mat. Uh, in Lviv, actually, uh, last last February, maybe, um, and uh, you know, especially after the the revolution in fourteen, uh, people people even had like uh, uh, magnets on their cars, uh, saying Putin's a dick, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so that that is actually a very common sentiment in Ukraine. Uh, what's uh, What's really amazing to me, though, is that if you think about this. Ukraine has a very large Russian-speaking population. Uh, so basically, outside maybe a few po- a few folks uh, west and Carpathian Mountains, everybody speaks Russian, whether they want to speak it or not. Uh, but everybody speaks on this stance. Uh, uh, some young people don't anymore. But they, I'd say anything, anybody over the age of 30 speaks it. Uh, and, uh, you know, by, by statistics, about 30% of people in Ukraine uh, are, are Russian by by heritage, uh, and uh, we're sympathetic to Russian Federation, not necessarily to Putin, but sympathetic to Russia. And so, uh, what 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 we're seeing uh, in in Kiev right now, in Kharkiv, especially Kharkiv, is a is a huge Russian population, uh, and Mariupol is a huge Russian population. There's a huge miscalculation by uh, Putin's uh, uh, on on his behalf because. You would think these people will come and greet you with flowers, right? They're they're greeting you with Molotov cocktails and they're burning uh, APCs all over the place. So uh, they're not necessarily nationalistic, uh, and, and a lot of people are. But as a country, they're they're more uh, they're more proud. Uh, they have a they have a much higher level of identity as a people than in the U.S. anymore. U.S. You know, uh, as a kid, you always see U.S. flags everywhere. You, you know, you see uh, anthems at, at every uh, high school game, you know, Little League, whatever, right? Uh, now it's just kind of, uh, you know, weathered away, so to say. In Ukraine, that's not the case. So people are very proud and they have a strong identity as, as Ukrainians, as citizens of Ukraine, uh, even if they don't necessarily even speak Ukrainian language. Everybody, so there's a bunch in Kiev, I'd say there's probably... 40% of people in Kiev that don't even speak Ukrainian, they understand it, but they don't speak it. They speak Russian. So, uh, you know, somebody may talk to them in Ukrainian, they respond in Russian. It's, it's very common in, in Kiev. Uh, uh, and, and actually, no one takes offense to that. You know, Ukrainians that are more nationalistic, they don't say, you bastards, you know, why don't you speak Ukrainian? It's just it's like a common currency, right? Either you speak Ukrainian with Ukrainian or Russian with Ukrainian, nobody really cares. So. Those people uh, that that you would have thought would be at least kind of apathetic, right, or maybe even welcoming uh, to to the invading troops, uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. You know, they're they're the ones fighting as well. So uh, a much closer knit uh, society around uh, their identity as a country, as a people, than uh, I even imagined uh, before, uh, and much more so than the U.S. right now. Jeez. So over this last year, so I think it's um, what is it, two billion dollars uh, a year or something that the the Russians pay to Ukraine to to move their um, energy across uh, Ukraine in a pipeline. I think there's two pipelines, one through Belarus, one through through uh, through Ukraine. Is that is that how things are set up? 
Yeah. So the yeah. So two billion dollars. That's about the the tra- the uh, the transportation fee, right? Uh, that uh, Gazprom pays to uh, GTS, the, the uh, gas transportation system of Ukraine, uh, GTSU. Uh, and uh, but outside of that, uh, besides just the ability to get the revenue, what the gas in the pipeline does for Ukraine is the ability to then uh, basically take the gas through the custody to say Hungary and then reverse the gas flow from Hungary back to Ukraine, fulfilling its own energy needs. Mm. So you basically get A, revenue, and B, you get a natural gas that, that you purchase back uh, at the custody uh, you know, uh, transition point. So leading up to discussion about Nord Stream 2, if you wanted to go there, yeah. if this happens, Russia can theoretically and, and would have uh, practically shut off the gas flow through Ukraine so Ukraine gets slammed twice, you know. A, you lose two billion dollars, and and you know, for Ukraine, it's it's a decent chunk of chunk of GDP. It's not you know small potatoes for this country, but mm-hmm. also then you lose the ability uh, to meet its own uh, energy needs, even even by being able and ready to pay for it. So that becomes problematic twice. So now, if, if uh, Nord Stream two doesn't take off, uh, the only way Russia can sell uh, gas to to Europe is through the same pipeline system across Ukraine. Uh, which, uh, you know, somewhat actually limits their military options, number one. Uh, and then number two, it's still a huge source of revenue for Russia that they don't want to lose. And it's a source of gas for Ukraine. So here's where we come in, uh, in hopes of making Ukraine energy independent. Uh, then this whole thing becomes irrelevant, right? Mm. So that's, that's, uh, that's what I'd like to see. Interesting. And Nord Stream 2, can you talk a little bit about that? Um and how it affects things geopolitically for those who have heard it. Now, most everyone has, has heard about this, but um, can you go into, into detail on it? Yeah, so I have to be a little bit careful with that because I, you know, I am much more focused on operations and, and finding gas and producing gas. Uh, and Nord Stream 2 is a very, it's most and foremost is a political issue. It's, it's a political conversation. Uh, but, but essentially, uh, for the same reasons that I've mentioned uh, before, if uh, Russia is able to take gas to Nord Stream 2 into Germany and then distribute uh, all over Europe, uh, they basically uh, are not no longer compelled to send gas to Ukraine. And actually, mm-hmm. Russia has take or pay transit payments through Ukraine until 2025, I believe. Uh, but they have been already curtailing uh, transit volumes through through Ukraine and happily paying Ukraine. The take or pay payment for transportation, just just to just to mess with Ukraine and and you know just to kind of show like look guys we're happy to pay you money for the gas that we're not going to send you because we're going to send it you know through some other means, um, and so again if the pipeline gets commissioned uh, then uh, Ukraine loses a lot of revenue uh, but it also uh, is severely limited in the ability to then procure gas for itself uh, for its own uh, energy needs uh, that are growing right it it, it it needs a lot of fertilizer. Uh, winters are harsh. You know, you use natural gas for heating. A uh, bunch of industries, bakeries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a, it's a huge uh, security issue for Ukraine, not just in terms of the two billion dollars for the transit, uh, but but frankly, just being able to uh, hit people's homes. Jeez. And when you got over there, um, what did you notice as far as things being different from previous uh, jobs that you had uh, had worked from a uh, uh, a security standpoint, but from a security standpoint in terms of uh, maybe surveillance and uh, monitoring, that sort of a thing. Do you notice a, uh, 
any sort of a, uh, a Russian influence, even on that sort of thing, or a Ukrainian one, um, or you don't have to answer this or no uh, organized crime one. Like what, what was, what was different, uh, when you walked into this, uh, this new job, um, that you hadn't experienced in the States before from that sort of a standpoint? Well, what I definitely haven't experienced and what most uh, Americans haven't experienced is your uh, office assistant uh, walking in, walking you into your new office uh, and uh, uh, telling you that your office is wiretapped. Uh, so that's probably, you know, the thing that most Americans don't uh, experience. And then, uh, and then the, the other crazy thing is like nobody's using corporate email in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, they use WhatsApp or Telegram. Because guess what? Everybody's phones are bugged as well. Uh, that could be SBU, that could be the Russians, that could be the internal security service. Uh, you know, uh, I was told by the HR lady uh, when I was joining up the guys that your email is being read by at least five or six entities. So uh, that's uh, uh, so so. No, uh, no passing dirty jokes. Um, so <laughs> that's that was the that was the first thing that uh, that kind of like uh, was uh, I wouldn't say it was shocking. Uh, I, I, it wasn't really unexpected, but it was a little sobering. Uh, I would say as you kind of like take a step into the office, um, you know. Uh, and then of course you, but I would say uh, as far as security is concerned, uh, the natural gas industry in Ukraine is considered to be a uh, uh, strategic uh, in industry and it's very closely curated by the government uh, and the security is tight and the security apparatus uh, is very involved uh, and uh, we have a lot of folks that are that are uh, dealing with that every day uh, and it's uh, it's actually pretty impressive and uh, what's uh, what's happening now uh, the ability of the company to just uh, continue uh, producing gas and moving people in and out and, and transferring assets and uh, kind of dealing with daily operations um, uh, during the invasion uh, kind of tells you that like these guys have been getting ready for this for a long time. Interesting. And, and uh, did, would you were impacted by any of the uh, cyber attacks that we, that we read about here in the, in the States? Um, were you guys impacted by that or were you hardened already prepared for that? Or um, what was that like? Well, uh, I, not not Naftagas. Uh, Naftagas was not impacted. I think they were probably more better prepared uh, than uh, some government, some other governmental agencies for that. Yeah. Uh, but things like like your uh, your bank uh, phone app would not work uh, for you know six okay. hours. Uh, things things like that. Uh, but but again, I have to uh, give shout out to Evan. One of the first things he told me to start to start hoarding cash. Um, U.S. dollars, right? Uh, so, so uh, you know, if I can't use my bank app for for a day or two, that's not that really, uh, you know, that big of a deal. Uh, but that's the only way it impacted me. I did not impact the company. Um, but uh, you know, when that began happening, that was just another little uh, clue that uh, things are getting, you know, more intense, and they just kind of like a snowball. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. Like at some point, it's going to be an avalanche, right? Uh, so that was, to me, that was definitely a telltale sign. Yes. Oh man. And, and what was that like? The, the, uh, the first, um, I guess, were you woken up by missiles hitting by planes flying over by artillery? What, um, what was that like? So, yeah, so there were no planes or artillery at the time, but, uh, what, what happened was I was, uh, 
uh, you know, we uh, we received the news of uh, calling in reservists, and also, actually, by the way, uh, the parliament uh, they literally took like a copy and paste, I think, of a Texas gun law for for personal carry, and voted unanimously the night before the invasion. Wow! So anybody who really cared to have a gun at that point could could get a gun. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and then, basically, when Putin recognized the two republics, right? Uh, I, I knew that there was going to be most likely a war, at least fifty-fifty chance. And to me, when you talk about a war, fifty percent chance is a pretty damn high chance. Yeah. Uh, for for my taste, so uh, you know, I was, I was, I guess, I was as prepared as I could be. So I took uh, two Benadryls and went to bed. Uh, <laughs> you know, I had my car packed and everything, and, and then I thought it's really stupid to take two Benadryls, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, at I know you wouldn't approve that, uh, but uh, but then at five fifteen in the morning, uh, I just kind of woke up and and uh, from my kind of groggy state, and I thought, "What idiot is shooting fireworks outside?" This it really sounded kind of like muffled fireworks. Uh, and then I walked up to the window, and I didn't see fireworks, and they just kept kind of like uh, kind of like a muffled boom. Um, so I thought, "Well, what the hell was that?" Uh, and then I opened my Twitter and. Uh, and of course, everything is blowing up, right? It's a, it's a cruise missile attack. So they were hitting uh, a bunch of military infrastructure with cruise missiles. Uh, I think those were their, uh, I forget what they're called. They're, they're, I think they're firing them from, uh, from uh, the Black Sea. Uh, and so uh, just really kind of shitty feeling, uh, to be honest. And uh, I grabbed uh, some of my friends uh, as, as soon as I could, uh, which wasn't soon enough. And we tried to get out of Kiev. Well, as you would imagine, everybody has the same idea, right? So very quickly, we got kind of gridlocked. And before I really got stuck in traffic, I turned around and went back uh, to my apartment, uh, just still kind of hearing intermittently those booms from cruise missiles. But they, were, they weren't close. Uh, I, you know, there were some military bases and warehouses and things like that that would get hit. Uh, so again, my, my apartment building is right next to everything, right? So all of a sudden, you know, you see a, a Berdem uh, uh, show up uh, with a bunch of infantry guys. Uh, that's the territorial defense, I believe. Uh, they're they're like one thing was really weird to me. Like I saw it in World War II movies. They had those field telephones with cables. They were like running cables across uh, the playground. Like wow, what? don't they just have walkie talkies? Like like the hell is this? Um, so so, uh, but they were getting you know securing the building because. I think of my building, there's some uh, congressmen and some other, you know, diplomats that live in my buildings. And uh, uh, so like, okay, you know, just hung out. Um, it was kind of getting towards the evening. I, I had a good stash of Cubans. So I brought uh, those uh, military guys, a bunch of my Cuban cigars, smoked the Cubans with them. Uh, there were uh, two girls with them, maybe 19 at the most, uh, uh, with them, with AKs. So in, in Ukraine, they have uh, women serving in uh, uh infantry or you know just any branch really so i made them some coffee brought them some sweets um and then a friend of mine called me actually my boss and he said you know it's probably not a good idea to be where you are you really need to just come and spend the night at my place which is about uh three and a half miles uh, south um from the center of kiev uh, because he said you know we've heard a lot of rumors that russian spitznaz is going to try to take over the government district which is probably why we had all those, uh, you know, uh, army guys. 
So got in the car, you know, you're driving through the uh, center of Kiev. Uh, they have, uh, uh, I, I don't even know what those were. They're, they look like some kind of, like a big SWAT vehicle, but then they have a rotating turret with bulletproof uh, yep. glass on top and a machine gun, uh, probably a 50. Uh, they, were, they were kind of like not completely blocking the street, but at an angle. So you have to like drive around them to get, to get through. You have to slow down and drive around them to, 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 to keep on going. So I got around that, uh, and then uh, I've heard what I thought were maybe jets, uh, and I was like, well, time to break some uh, traffic rules. So I did some uh, one-way, wrong-way driving, some red lights, um, got to my friend's place very quickly. Um, things kind of come down, right? And I, and I had this Ukrainian family with me that, that I got out of Kiev. So they're eight-year-old girl and a woman and her mother. So we just, uh, and I, you know, they left their suitcases at my house. I had my, my go back, you know, I don't let go of it. Um, and we spent the night, well, before with my, with my boss, we had a few uh, scotches. Uh, and at 4.15, I got awakened by some more uh, cruise missiles going off. Uh, and of course, by then I know the sound, right? And there was, a, mm -hmm. they were hitting, um, uh, they were hitting this Antonov Air Base uh, or in the vicinity, disabling the military infrastructure around it. So uh, their their idea was to try to get paratroopers out there uh, and uh, and start, you know, taking over the city. Uh, so that's when we kind of looked at each other like, okay, it's probably time to go because if we don't right now and there's reports of tanks advising from different directions, uh, we will not get out of the city if, if we wanted to. So that's kind of that was on the 25th, and uh, we we took off. And, and you know, it's really interesting, right? To this Tucker Carlson thing on on Twitter, I had a bunch of guys on on fought, uh, like a good Ukrainians. Apparently, they they thought because of my name I was Ukrainian and I was supposed to uh, pick up arms. Uh, so I would say if if any of those guys are listening, uh, they can still come through Poland uh, into Western Ukraine and uh, join the territorial defense. Uh, and it takes literally just like a sign of the cross, and there's your AK. Uh, a very simple, very simple thing. So, you know, I did see that. I was, I, uh, I was going to compliment you on your restraint when, uh, when I saw that. I mean, obviously, they're just trolls. Who knows if they're even a real person? I did click on, on the, the profile and saw, you know, they have like 14 followers and you know the, you can't see their face obviously and so i you don't really know if it's even a real person but uh, i i admire your restraint and i thought that your response to them was absolutely perfect well you know it's uh it's it's all fun and games until you have to uh dodge cruise, cruise missiles or you know see a a A55s coming in and getting shut down with stinger missiles. house and uh, his friend was driving back to his he's got like one of those floating homes on, on one of the channels uh, close to Dnipro and uh, they were trying to come in from the Chernobyl side and you know K55 helicopters and he said literally one helicopter just fell down right in front of his car just crushed uh, shut down by, by a missile so that, that was the kind of stuff that was happening as, as we were leaving this city and of course that obviously got a lot worse uh, and, uh, the other weird thing is, you know, you, I, I'm trying to analyze, you know, how I feel in a situation like that, because, you know, and I'm sure, you know, a lot about this, you, you never know how you would feel until, until you're in that situation. Uh, and, um, people here in Kiev, they're very, 
uh, calm and statistical about this. And I, and I kind of began becoming this way. So we're driving towards this uh, town called Rivne. Rivne has uh, some kind of military installation, so it's been hitting by cruise missiles. And I think they were trying to uh, uh, take it over with Spetsnaz, but they failed. So we're driving, and my my way is, take, is taking me right by the airport. And uh, uh, I hear, like, checking my telegram feed, and I see that it's getting hit by cruise missiles uh, literally 20 minutes before we're supposed to get there. And I'm like, well, you know, they're going to be done by the time we get close to it. So probably a good time to go through that because it'll take them like another hour probably to send another barrage of missiles. So we, sure enough, we drive past it. And then not even half an hour, you know, we, we hear sirens and missiles are coming back or coming in uh, towards the airport. Um, so, uh, you know, pretty, pretty strange experience. Yeah. Gosh. So right now, so do you feel like you're in a, a fairly safe area right now or what is your what are your plans going forward is it just to to continue to to run operations for the for the company there or is there a certain point in time where you say hey everybody we're we're out of here you know um regardless of what those people on twitter say right to me uh flee from the country would would be just like a really uh bad taste to me you know i i become uh really invested in what I'm doing here. Uh, and I really would rather not, not, uh, not leave Ukraine. I think what's going to happen is, first of all, Lviv is a very uh, safe place right now. But as you know, things can develop fast. I mean, they can, uh, you know, Antona 72 can uh, deploy 150 very quickly. A few of those, they can, they can overwhelm the city, you know, even if it's, uh, even if it's guarded. So, uh, I think there's probably a good chance uh, that we may get overrun in the next 48 hours. Uh, not sure. Uh, or maybe not. It's, it's hard to say, right? Uh, but my plan is to go to work on Monday and uh, just uh, get uh, embedded in our operational planning and try to, uh, you know, continue making chicken salad out of chicken shit, uh, so to say. Um, and, uh, and then we'll see. Uh, you know, I frankly don't know what my American passport means to to Russian paratrooper, but uh, you know we have 760 people here, a lot of resources, a lot of places to pull back. Um, so, you know, uh, I think it's gonna be okay. I mean, are you you don't seem too worried about uh, your safety or being targeted even? Um, uh, I mean, you're, you're posting on on Twitter, which is the the only reason that that uh, that I. I that I reached out was because you were already public about where you are and what you're doing and your thoughts on, on Twitter. And then I just, I thought that you got out of the country. Honestly, I thought, I thought you were, you were out when I was like, Hey, let's sit down and talk. Um, and then I realized that you were not out. Um, and, uh, are you worried about your, your safety? And of course, if you are, I will never put this up you know, until a year from now when everything's calmed down, hopefully, or whatever it might be. But uh, are you worried about your, your safety dollar being specifically, uh, targeted for any reason? Or do you think that you won't be targeted, um, because you're, uh, an American and you're, um, you have that passport and you're working at a fairly high profile country or company in, in Ukraine? Yeah, I think my I think the American passport does help. I'm probably if I were to be worried, it'd probably be like just some random you know missile hitting hitting the building or things like that, you know. And uh, uh, to to that effect, it's kind of hard to uh, to think about it too much. I mean, it's, it's statistically, you know, there there are certain odds that uh, 
that are always there. Um, I don't know. Maybe I should be more worried. Maybe I'm still uh, not thinking right from being sleep depraved. Um, I don't know. Uh, but right now, you know, frankly, what what I do think about more is, um, you know, uh, maybe a couple of weeks prior to the invasion, uh, I've been walking around the town and you see like kids in little in strollers and mothers, and um, and then I realized that uh, all my American friends that would put things like praying for your safety on your Facebook, I said, don't don't pray for my safety, pray for two million people in Kiev. Uh, because, you know, they're probably more vulnerable than I am. Uh, and, and the elderly and the children, um, a lot more vulnerable. You know, I can probably, uh, I'm probably a lot more mobile. And I can do a lot more things, including even the physical security if I need to, uh, than, you know, ordinary people here. So uh, I was actually kind of thinking more, a little bit more about that. Wow. That certainly says a lot about uh, you and your, and your character. Um, you know, Throughout a lot of history, obviously, resource grabs are, uh, are one of the, the main reasons that uh, that countries uh, invade one another. Um, do you think that is more of the reason why Russia wants uh, Ukraine back under the fold, or is it to uh, reconstitute something that once was, or is it, or is it both? I think, frankly, the whole thing is very irrational. You know, uh, talking to my my friends and my uh, my brother lives in Russia, uh, nobody can understand why this is happening. Like literally, mm. people are like, what in the hell is going on and why? Mm. Um, so, uh, to me, probably the attempt to reconstitute uh, the old Soviet Union will be probably a uh, a more prevailing reason to do something like that. In which case, if I was you know, Kazakhstan or Azerbaijan or Armenia or Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania, I would be really uh, asking myself a question of, you know, what was happening next. Uh, you know, it, the whole thing has been so erratic and so poorly organized, just even in terms of uh, the military action that we've been seeing around Ukraine and Kiev, uh, the Russian casualties are, are enormous. Uh, they seem to be disorganized. They, they get uh, taken prisoner all over the place. Uh, you know, I've I've heard more than once uh, that they they are all in from Belarus. They don't even know they're in Ukraine or what's their objective, right? And they they just kind of run out of diesel. They get broken down, and the Ukrainian guys pull up and and ask, "Hey, dudes, what what are you doing here?" Like, ah, you know, you guys have some diesel. We're out of diesel. Uh, and so it's just really weird uh, to me. It's just I don't even know what to think about it. It's just complete chaos on on the part of. Uh, the Russian military execution, right? I mean, they knew where to uh, send cruise missiles for sure, very accurate, but the rest of it is just a shit show from think, from the standpoint of just kind of watching it on the ground. Yeah, interesting. Do you, do you think that they thought that uh, that Ukraine would just kind of fold, that the that uh, the president would leave um, under the, the threat of invasion or the initial incursion and that they were surprised by the resistance that they've run into? I, I thought they were probably confusing uh, Ukraine with the, with France of 1939, uh, and uh, that did not pan out very well. I, th- I really think they were expecting to roll in and you know people bread, bring them bread and salt and, and shots of vodka, and uh, you know they they uh, replace the government and it's done. Uh, and, you know, and and this is not happening for sure. Interesting. The people that you talked to, or was the sentiment, um, did, did people think that the United States would? Uh, or Germany, the UK um, would 
come to Ukraine's defense? Um, were they expecting that? Did were they not expecting that? Do you do you think? Because um, I know they that Ukraine gave up their their nuclear arsenal in 1994, um, and I think part of that was. Uh, I don't know if it's an actual treaty or or not, but um, part of that was that the the U.S., U.K., Germany, uh, I think a few others would uh, provide for that defense because they were giving up their their nuclear arsenal that obviously was in the country under the former Soviet Union that broke up in 1991. Um, were they expecting more, or was that not even a, a calculus? Were they, were they more of the mindset that hey, uh, kind of like thirty seconds out, no one's coming, it's up to us. Um, What's the general sentiment as far as that goes? Uh, Budapest Memorandum of 1994. And there's a, <clears throat> definitely a difference between a uh, memorandum and a treaty. Yeah. If you get my drift. Yeah. Uh, so so that, that's, that's one issue. Uh, I don't think anybody in Ukraine uh, would, would think uh, an country would actually have uh, troops on the ground in Ukraine. Nobody here uh, allowed for that. Uh, people knew that they would have to fight alone, uh, but they went. So they were, and um, as as you can see, I mean, I'm sure you can look up the stats, right? But they they've uh, inflicted a very very heavy toll on uh, you know mechanized infantry and tanks, uh, and uh, you know all those shipments worked. And actually, even driving back to Lviv, uh, I, I saw uh, still shipments coming in uh, from Eastern Europe. Uh, so. They're, they're continuing to come in as far as I know. Uh, and, and so, uh, and actually having like in-laws or, or javelins in, in an urban environment makes them probably awfully effective against tanks and mechanized infantry as the Molotov cocktails, actually. I've seen videos of people hurling Molotov cocktails from their apartment buildings and burning up uh, APCs. Jeez. I mean, that's... To see this today is uh, is uh, in the U.S. It's it's shocking for a lot of people because they don't have a touch point with anything other than stability. And um, as as you know from obviously how you grew up, and for those who have been around the world and been downrange, realize that uh, uh, society, quote unquote, civilized society, is uh, is a very fragile thing and uh, can be disrupted in in a moment, um, which is what we're seeing in in the Ukraine today. Um, so to see those people hurling Molotov cocktails down on APCs um, in 2022 uh, in, in the people in the United States, it's uh, a lot of people, it's shocking, but it should be a reminder that society is fragile uh, and it is best to be prepared and to have those contingencies in place like you did. You knew where your fallback position was. I'm sure you have a fallback position now from where you are uh, currently, like your next move, if things get get even worse, uh, you were prepared with that cash. Um, you had that go bag. Um, I won't ask you about your exact vehicle in case you need to still still use it, but I know you're a vehicle guy. Um, so uh, so I'll, I'll ask you more about that offline when we when we talk after this is this is all over. Um, but uh, yeah, next moves for uh, for for you. Um, uh, you're just going to stay in place as long as you can. Continue to run operations um, and monitor the situation and stay stay flexible. Is that is that your plan? So two things on the vehicles before we get to that. I did get my Defender finished, and actually <laughs> I didn't I want was, to ask you exactly was, uh, about it because I didn't want. <laughs> no, but I was I was really thinking about shipping it to Ukraine, uh, but uh, I don't think that's happening uh, at this point. Uh, 
it's actually a pretty damn expensive toy. Yeah. And I don't know that that's the perfect, uh, perfect car in a, in a situation like this, because yeah. it, it, maybe it goes 70 miles an hour, but that's about it. Uh, you could probably take it across the field, uh, but you know, limited application. So, uh, I did not bring my defender, uh, my other vehicle, and I'm really happy and I recommend uh, that, uh, to, to anybody, an SUV with a diesel engine and the diesel will take you a long way. 1200 kilometers on a single tank. Uh, you can, you can cover a lot of ground when gas stations are out of gas. That's, uh, that's really important. Uh, so. Uh, what's next to me? I go to work on Monday, uh, wow. and then we'll see. Uh, you know, uh, we're, but like I said, you know, the company, uh, the company is big here. We have a lot of people. We have uh, infrastructure. We have an office. The company is actually uh, figuring out and, and uh, taking in refugees that that work for the company to and place them to different parts of Ukraine. Uh, we have security updates, uh, so um, it feels like feels like family. Uh, so. Uh, go back to work on Monday, but maybe, uh, maybe don't publish your podcast for like another week or two, just in case. I'm going to hold <laughs> off until you tell me it's okay. And even when you tell me it's okay, I might hold off a little longer, uh, just to be on yeah, the maybe, safe side. Maybe I, I, I'd say, I'd say, give me two weeks. I'll give you two weeks at least. And then, uh, and then, uh, maybe we can link back up and we'll do an addendum to it and talk about what happened over the last two weeks. Um, uh, or something like that, but I'll keep monitoring the, uh, the situation here and I'll stay in touch with you, obviously on, uh, WhatsApp or direct message and, and all that sort of thing. And I'll be thinking of you. I've been thinking about you this entire time, uh, sending thoughts your way, prayers, your way for you, your family, your friends, everybody that's, uh, that's, uh, that's there dealing with this situation right now. Um, but, oh man, what a crazy thing to be right in the middle of. Well, and, and, you know, uh, before we wrap up, if, if that's where we're going, I, I would have to say a couple of things. First of all, uh, Ukrainians, you, you know, U.S. has a lot of issues, right? Uh, problems that, that from inside U.S. that we can see a lot of division and, uh, you know, the economy is not amazing right now. Uh, outside of U.S., by other countries like Ukraine, and, and I'm sure Russia as well, it is still viewed as a superpower. It is viewed mm-hmm. as the most powerful country on earth with the most powerful military and economy. So however we feel about the flaws of the U.S. Uh, from looking from the inside out, uh, they're not really visible from outside in too much. So people here still think, uh, and, and probably they're right, and I'm sure they're right, that it's still the most powerful country on earth uh, with the most powerful military and economy. So it's viewed as and also viewed as, as a beacon on the hill. It, it really is. So, you know, to the external world, outside the world, we haven't lost it. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, I thought it would be pretty important to mention. And then the other thing I would like to mention is Ukrainians are hugely appreciative of the support that uh, the U.S. is providing to Ukraine and NATO. And even, you know, cities lighting up, like I know Dallas lit up in uh, blue and yellow and a lot of cities across the U.S. and the world. Um, Canada, uh, they're very appreciative and they're very almost like sentimental about the support that they're getting. Uh, and they feel like it's not in vain and it needs to continue. Wow. And for you being a uh, U.S. citizen growing up where you did, um, uh, building this career that you have uh, and now being in Ukraine in the middle of this, um, does it 
does any of it give you, uh, are you hopeful for the future of the United States um, as far as internal division goes? Uh, or are you uh, more pessimistic as far as the, the future goes? Well, I sure would like not, I sure would like to see U.S. becoming another Rome, right? That's probably the, the closest analogy historically that we can think of. Uh, but I also tend to think of a society as a, as a pendulum, right? You, you swing it hard one way, it's going to swing hard the other way, but eventually it's going to settle somewhere towards the middle, right? And, and uh, <coughs> we've seen those wild swings uh, over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, the, the swing of the last... Uh, Four, four to five years was followed by this current swing of the political uh, pendulum. Uh, and uh, I, I just hope that uh, people uh, viewing what's happening in the world in terms of the geopolitics, in terms of energy, um, are, are becoming more aware and more in touch with reason and logic and physics and economics. Uh, and, and people, uh, I would hope, would begin to to think rationally. That's that's all you can ask, right? Is for people to think rationally. If you have ration uh, ra- rationality, have logic, uh, everything's going to be fine. So that's that's what I hope for. You know, I'm on the same page as you are as far as learning to learning how to think logically. That's one of the most important things we can do. One of the most important things we can teach our kids. And unfortunately, um, we don't teach that in school. So if the kids are going to get it, this next generation, it has to come from, from parents, from mentors, from friends. Um, but thinking through things logically. Um, and uh, I, think, yeah, I think you're right on track as far as all that goes. So, oh man, thank you so much for, for taking this time. And, and uh, we will definitely circle back in the next couple of weeks and uh, hopefully jump on again and talk about what has transpired between then and now. Um, but man, I, I have so much respect for you staying in place there. I mean, you're a leader within that, that company as a senior level executive um, and keeping things running. And once again, thinking things through logically and being such a good example for all those in your, in your circle. Um, uh, and not just on the business side, but as far as being prepared and uh, having those fallback positions in place and thinking things through logically. So, man, you stay safe out there. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate it. It's a huge honor to be in the podcast. Hope to talk oh, to you soon. Man, honor is all mine. And uh, you know how to reach me. So reach out if you need anything. If there's anything I can do, I'm always here for you. And uh, yeah, sincerely appreciate all your support over the last few years. And uh, man, I'll be, I'll, I'll be thinking about you and I'll be in touch. All right, man. Sounds good. Just want to say a quick thank you to Navy Federal Credit Union for taking such good care of me and my family over the years. I've been a member since 1996 right there. There's my Navy Federal Credit Union cue card right there. So yeah, been a member for quite some time now. They've done a fantastic job with me and my family. And I know that investing and saving can be stressful and Navy Federal Credit Union takes that stress away. A lot of educational materials and they can help you get on track in 2022 when it comes to saving and investing. So go to navyfederal.org backslash save and invest. Trust me, you won't regret it. All right. Mountain Tough. MTN Tough. Awesome. There's a huge announcement from the crew over at Mountain Tough. MTN Tough. After two years in the making, behind the scenes, the Mountain Tough Plus native app is finally here for you and ready to be downloaded on all the platforms. iPhone, Android, Apple TV, Roku, and more. 
MTN Tough Plus is the fitness app trusted by the dedicated, trusted and used by dedicated backcountry hunters, wildlife firefighters, law enforcement officers, and U.S. military special operations forces. And now you can train on your time, your way from your phone, tablet, TV, or web. MTN Tough Plus is an all-access subscription, giving you access to all Mountain Tough programs, all new programs, and bonus content. Awesome. If you've been following me for a while, you know that I have prioritized finishing my latest novel and moving. This will probably be one of the last things I do from this studio as we move to the new house and new studio. Um, so that is about to change my priorities moving forward. Well, I'm going to get better at scheduling these things and actually getting those workouts in, then working for about three or four hours on the novel, then jumping into the business side of thing for an hour or two. But uh, point being, MTN Tough, Mountain Tough is the program that I am using. Uh, I've been scouring the website, checking out the app. It is absolutely awesome. And these days with so much going on, I need something that's going to tell me what to do because uh, I'm going to shift right from doing one thing, bam, into the workout and having it right there, ready to rock. That's exactly what I need. So thank you guys for putting this together and putting so much thought, time, energy, effort, and testing into it. Um, because what I want to do these days uh, is be ready for life. Uh, and yeah, I'm probably not jumping out of a plane anymore and, uh, and going doing those special operations type missions. Um, now it is training for life and to keep up with very active kids. Um, but this is what I'm going to use MTN Mountain Tough. Increase mental toughness, build muscle, improve endurance anytime, anywhere from any mobile device. Thousands of workouts are available in the MTN Tough Plus subscription. You can start today with no equipment needed to start. That's what also that I liked what I saw. You can have equipment or no equipment. Um, and there are workouts for every level, beginner, intermediate, advanced, elite, um, just get on there and check it out. And then more importantly, get after it. Uh, everything you need is in one spot. From cardio to strength, mountain tough programs are designed to be built around the build, the optimal athlete, thousands of hours of testing on dedicated mountain hunters, first responders, and military personnel programs for everyone. Those who hit the gym and the heavyweights and those who like to work out at home with no gear at all stream from your TV, laptop, mobile, or tablet. download workouts in iOS and Android compatible with Chromecast and airplay. MTN tough has been the trusted training for dedicated individuals for years now, including U.S. military special operations and dedicated backcountry hunters. There is no excuse for you not to start today, as after two years of research and development, the MTN Tough Plus native app is ready to download. With MTN Tough Plus, you can conquer your goals with thousands of workouts and train with equipment or just your body weight on your phone, tablet, TV, or web browser. MTN Tough is offering Danger Close listeners 20% off all new Mountain Tough Plus subscriptions with the code DANGERCLOSE. Go to mtntough.com and enter the code DANGERCLOSE to receive 20% off brand new Mountain Tough Plus subscription. That, again, is mtntough.com and enter the code DANGERCLOSE. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union.
find out more about Oleg, you can follow him on Twitter. And that Twitter handle is O-T-O-L-M-A-C-H-E-V. And we'll catch up with Oleg again in a couple of weeks and uh, see what's transpired since this first podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe out there. Be strong. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm-hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm-hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.